You're now listening to the Live Different Podcast with Matt Wilson. What's up, Live Different Podcast listeners? It's Matt Wilson here with another episode from Emily Fletcher of Ziva Meditation. She is a really cool meditation teacher that's been featured all over the place. I finally got the chance to sit down with her and really pick her brain, which was fantastic. But first, I wanted to give you a very special thank you. I've been asking for reviews and ratings on iTunes lately, and you guys have just humbled me with Uh, some really kind words, and I appreciate it. That's what this community is really about, is I want to give to you guys. That's the most important thing. And if you like the work that I'm doing, please leave me a rating. I really appreciate it. And my heart was broken. I got my first four-star rating, which, well, comes with the territory, I guess. Anyway, if I can do anything to make this podcast better, please let me know. Send me a direct message on Instagram, MattWilsonTV. I'd really appreciate it. You guys are awesome. You can also check out my new travel video on my Instagram, Matt Wilson TV again, and just love to interact with you. Keep giving you good content and hopefully make the world a better place. Thanks, everybody. Hello, everybody. I'm Matt Wilson, your host. And today we are here with Emily Fletcher doing a live uh, interview or, well, Not live, but she's live to me on the other side of (laughs) Skype here talking about her new book, Stress Less, Accomplish More, Meditation for Extraordinary Performance. Emily is the founder of Ziva Meditation. She is coming uh, to us from the West Village in New York, and she has taught about 15,000 people to meditate, uh, including Oscar, Tony, Grammy, and Emmy Award winners, professional athletes, Navy SEALs, Fortune 500 CEOs, full-time moms, busy entrepreneurs, and young people like our audience. So without further ado, Emily, welcome. Hey, Matt. Thank you for having me. I'm so happy to be here. You are very welcome. Uh, I am excited, of course, about your new book. I have heard you teaching meditation in uh, quite a number of places. You've become a kind of a household name in the the meditation space, and you have a really interesting story. And I'd love to have you share that a little bit with our audience and make sure they get some actionable things for not only how to meditate but how to accomplish the things that they want in their life, because I know that's the new topic of your book, not just meditation, how to sit there uh, in lotus pose and feel really great, but also how this practice can apply to actionable things other than just sitting for meditation. So Emily, yeah, would love to hear a, a little bit more. Yeah, so you're absolutely right. I think that we meditate to get good at life, not to get good at meditation. Nobody cares if you're good at meditation. And this is really tough for me because I'm very competitive and no one cares. Nobody cares how many or few thoughts you're having when you sit quietly in a chair. Everyone cares how good you are at life. How creative are you? How present are you? How healthy? How kind? How intuitive? What's your intuition like? How's your sleep? How's your sex? And how's your parking karma? And all of these things parking are made. Parking karma. <laughs> That's it's great. Real. Yeah. Parking karma is real and it gets way better when you start meditating. And so I think that a lot of folks don't understand that stress actually makes us stupid and it makes us sick and it makes us slow. So we're running around making excuses for why we aren't meditating. You know, I'm too busy. I can't clear my mind. I don't have time. 
But my new thing is like, look, you can either say I'm too busy to meditate. You can either adopt that as reality, or you can believe that stress makes you stupid. But both of those facts cannot exist in the same logical argument. Right. And so you get to choose, you get to choose if you want to stay with your excuse of I'm too busy, or you can recognize the neurobiological fact that stress actually makes you stupid, sick and slow, that Harvard medical school is releasing some science saying that, sorry, that stress is responsible for 90% of all doctors visits. You can understand that doctors are calling stress, the black plague of our century, that 44% of American adult women are on anti-anxiety or antidepressants, that teen anxiety rates are higher than they've ever been. Or you can say, I'm too busy to meditate. But both of these things can't exist in the same argument. Wow. Those are some mind-blowing facts, first of all, some great statistics. And I love the idea that at least someone who has a grasp of reality or true consciousness cannot have those two ideas stick at the same time, that you were too busy to meditate. And yeah, these two things just don't correlate. They, they can't exist in the same place. And I think what a lot of people are doing is that they actually think that their stress is helping them or serving them, you know, because I tend to work with high performers, I tend to work with high achievers. And so like my acting clients will say, Emily, I need my stress. I need my hurdy poos. That's where my creativity comes from. And then my CEO clients will say to me, Emily, I need my stress, uh, that, that angst, that competition, that's the thing that gives me my competitive edge. And the answer is no. Stress makes you stupid, period, the end. There's a reason why you can't find your keys when they're in your hand, when you're rushing to get out the door. There's a reason why you can't find your glasses when they're on top of your head. It's because when you're stressed, your body and brain are burning so many cycles, preparing for what's ultimately an imaginary predator attack. You know, like in this day and age, saber-toothed tigers are no longer jumping out at you. This is not our modern life demands. And yet the body, the human body's physiology has not adapted fast enough to adapt to our modern day demands. So we're still having a fight or flight stress reaction on demands that do not warrant it. And so it's become maladaptive and it's actually now disallowing us from performing at the top of our game. It's like we have so many windows open on our brain machine that we don't have our full capacity, our full performance capacity for the task at hand. And so what meditation does is it goes in and it closes down all those old irrelevant windows so that you can really fire on all cylinders, both mentally and physically. And then what most of my students report, which is I think one of the things we were talking about earlier is that you said that a lot of folks in your audience, like, I get it, meditation is good for me, but I just can't commit to it. I can't stick to it. And so I think what's happening there is that people try meditation and they try some like crappy free thing on the internet. There's like a free YouTube video or a free app and they do it for six minutes and they're like, can't clear their mind. And they're like, oh, I suck at meditation because I'm still having thoughts and that wasn't worth my return on investment of my most valuable resource, which is my time. And then I quit. And so we got a lot of misconceptions that we got to clear up here. One, that people think they have to clear their mind in order to meditate, which is not true. The mind thinks involuntarily, just like the heart beats involuntarily. We have to clear up this idea that I'm too busy. And we have to understand that meditation is like any other skill. So once you have the skill and a technique that is designed for you, then it's so much easier to commit to it because you're actually seeing a return on your investment. But if you're not seeing that, then why would you commit? I love the closing the windows analogy. And I realized that this past month, I've been 
busier than normal, or at least it feels like quite a shift from the month that I just spent in Bali, Indonesia, where every, yeah, where everything is Zen and I ran a yoga retreat out there and yeah. And of course it was amazing. And I was able to focus and simplify and feel very in tune with that part of my life. And of course, right before our interview, literally five minutes before I was going through my window, all my windows that were open and they were all, I mean, I had five spreadsheets open on a budget project work that I'm working on. I had four documents open for the first four chapters of the book that I'm writing. Then I had my email where it was our tab, our, my current project was about our podcast and it had your Amazon uh, for your new book. It had your Instagram. It had the show notes that I've been typing up, collecting and researching. And I was like, oh my God, I need to close some of this. But I could, I had resistance to closing it because I, I said, that is going to disrupt my workflow. But really, it's just chatter in the background on literally on my computer, but also because it's open and I keep going back and I keep seeing those things, it makes me more conscious of all the things I have going instead of being present on just one thing. So I deliberately... I had to kind of take a deep breath and start closing things. But what would you tell people about their own workflow and how they can apply this strategy to, again, what they might practice on their yoga mat or on their cushion into real life? Mm-hmm. So first of all, bravo, way to, way to pull the trigger, way to click the X. And so I would offer this. I would offer that the present moment is the future in the making. The present moment is the future in the making. So the more all in you are, the more present you are right here, right now, the higher quality seeds you are planting for the future. But if you're spending all of this present moment stressing out about the future, then you're planting some very stressy seeds. And so we want to take care that we're fully here or fully now. And that here's the paradoxical thing that we all know is that your happiness can only ever be found right now and can only ever be found inside of you. And because most of us have not cultivated a meditation practice in order to be able to access that in a self-sufficient, repeatable fashion, we've convinced ourselves that our happiness lies on the other side of finishing this book or planning that trip to Bali or running this retreat or whatever the thing is. But then you do that. You run the retreat. You sell the book. You get the number one bestseller. You get the girlfriend. You get the job. And you're still not happy. So it doesn't really matter how many mountains you climb. If you don't have a means by which to access your fulfillment internally right here today, you could climb the highest mountain in the land. But then all you've done is proven to yourself that you can climb a mountain, but you're still not happy. So then you think, well, it must be on the top of the next mountain and the next and the next. And most of us do that until we die. And that's what I call the I'll be happy when syndrome. And I find that meditation is an antidote to that because within 30 to 45 seconds of practicing Ziva, your brain and body flood with dopamine and serotonin, which are bliss chemicals. And yes, that feels nice when you're doing it, which if that's all meditation did for you, then it's no better than smoking pot or drinking wine or doing mushrooms or something. But what happens when you meditate is not only do you flood your body with those bliss chemicals, but that starts to stay with you even outside of the meditation. That bliss chemistry starts to permeate how you see and perform in the rest of your life, in your waking state. And that is really what I'm interested in, right? Like that's why I talk about meditation for extraordinary performance, because the less 
longing you have, the less attached you are to outcome, the more you can actually create on a much bigger plane with the things that you care about. But if you think that your happiness is going to come on the other side of the person, place, or thing, then chances are you're very attached to the outcome. And it's very hard for nature to give you the thing when you have a death grip on the desire. So what meditation does is that because you're accessing your fulfillment internally, it allows you to soften the grip on your desire. So nature can actually put the thing in your hand. That's beautiful. And Mm -hmm. I wanted to point out to anybody uh, that if they're listening to this on iTunes or SoundCloud or, or wherever, to check out the YouTube video because as I was listing I'm off, beautiful. <laughs> yes, this is this is true, and even even more so, you took a very nice deep breath while I was stressing you out, listing all the things that I had going. Before you answered, you took a visible deep breath right there. And you just, okay, you let me go on and on and on. But then you said, okay, let's move forward in this direction. And that's very important for people to note, especially in regards to what you're talking about with fulfillment. Because as you were speaking, I came up with at least four or five questions that I wanted to ask. But I had to train myself to stay present and to fully listen and be in the moment and screw whatever questions I had. You know, I try to speak to myself, not in those terms, but really, okay, let's see where Emily is going with this. And now, all right, in a conversational tone, I can ask you about what you're saying about you're letting go of your desire in order to, yes. Letting go of my attachment to the outcome, okay, not to the desire. Okay. Uh, Could you explain that for people who are a little confused on how that works? Yeah. So I think that a lot of times when we hear the word meditation, we assume that it is a monastic practice. Because honestly, most of the mindfulness out there, which is most of the apps, most of the YouTube videos, most of the drop-in studios are teaching what I would call mindfulness, which is where you're directing your focus. It's the art of bringing your awareness into the present moment. But most of it has been adapted from techniques that were originally designed for monks. And with a monastic practice and certainly with more Buddhist practices, there's this philosophy that life is suffering. And if I can just transcend my desires, then I will transcend suffering, right? Life is suffering. If I can transcend my desires, then I'll transcend suffering. If I could just stop wanting to sleep with that girl, then I will be happy. If I could just stop wanting more money, then I will be happy. But those are decidedly monastic ways of looking at life, right? If you're not a monk, which is the other 99% of the human population, monks are only, it's like less than 1%, right? But the other 99% of us, we are what we call householders, right? And you want to have sex with people. You want to make money. You want to be in commerce. You want to spread ideas around by being in society. You're not reclusive by nature. And the styles of meditation that monks and householders practice are very different. And the style of meditation that I teach is based on something called Nishkam Karma Yoga, which means union attained by action hardly taken, the lazy man's meditation. And even though it's 6,000 years old, it was originally designed for people with busy minds and busy lives. It was designed to be integrated into your life to make you better at life, not to make you reclusive and give up all your desires. And so this is, gets a little advanced and a little maybe paradoxical, but here goes. So you wake up in the morning and you meditate and you flood your brain and body with dopamine and serotonin and you access your fulfillment in the only place that it resides, which is inside of you. Then you open your eyes and you still want to sleep with that guy. You still want to make a million dollars. So why? Why do those desires exist if you've already accessed your fulfillment internally? 
Well, I would hypothesize that those desires are an indicator of where nature wants to use you to deliver your gifts to society, not where you need to go to fill yourself up. So the only way the desires are bad is if you think that you're going to be happy on the other side of the attainment of the desire. If you know that that's not true because you have access to your own fulfillment internally, then you can start to trust your desires a little bit more and they start to become like nature's GPS. Where is nature using me? Where is nature cueing me? Where does it want me to go to deliver my fulfillment, not the other way around? Okay. Can you talk a little bit more about the specific style of meditation that you teach? Because I'm sure there are a lot, I mean, I know how many types of meditation there are more than I can actually imagine. And I'm sure all of the listeners have thousands of different types out there and many of them designed for monks, as you say. So could you talk about your style and how it differs in a little bit more detail and maybe what people can look for in a meditation practice? Mm -hmm. So the simplest definition of meditation is a stress relieving tool. And so that is, I think, why it's a little confusing because the word meditation is like the word food. You know, there's thousands of types of food. There's thousands of types of meditation. And so to write meditation off outright would be like writing food off. It's like, well, eating a cheeseburger is very different than drinking a smoothie. So, you know, you're not just going to say, well, I don't like cheeseburgers, so I'm never drinking a smoothie. You know, it's just, we have to understand that really this term is like a blanket term, like exercise, like food, like clothes. And so... And then from there, we have to be more specific with our vernacular. And as meditation is becoming so, so popular, it, I think it's it behooves us just to be very specific. So what we teach at Ziva is a trifecta of mindfulness, meditation, and manifesting. So mindfulness, I would define as the art of bringing your awareness into the present moment. Beautiful, powerful. Mindfulness, very good at getting rid of your stress in the now. Very good at creating a state change in the right now. Like I go to work, I'm feeling very stressed. I go home, I listen to Headspace for 10 minutes, I do a YouTube video for 10 minutes, and I feel better in the now. Awesome. Great. Meditation, as I would define it, and I'm going to ask everybody to do me a favor and take everything you've ever heard about meditation and throw it out the window and just call this thing Ramalama Ding Dong for a minute, and let's just be open to learning something new. Let's be open to the fact that there could be something different out there that maybe works better that maybe you don't have to clear your mind and yet your whole life will get better. So the meditation that I teach, like I was saying, it's, it's based on something called Nishkam Karma Yoga, union attained by action, hardly taken. And in it, we're actually inducing very deep rest, rest that's somewhere between two to five times deeper than sleep. And that's not an insignificant point because when you give your body the rest that it needs, it knows how to heal itself. And one of the things that it heals itself from is stress. Now, the difference between mindfulness and meditation is that in meditation, you're not only getting rid of your stress from the present, you're getting rid of all your stress from the past. So every dog that's ever barked in your face, every breakup, every Jack Daniels, every Taco Bell, every time you've been fired, like all that stuff gets stored in your cellular memory and it has to come up and out. And it's all that old stress stored in our cells. That's what's actually making us stupid. That is what is slowing us down. And so by giving the body this deep healing rest, you're going in and closing down those old windows. You're giving the body the healing that it needs to be able to get rid of all that old irrelevant junk. And ultimately it's that that increases your performance capabilities. And then at the end of the meditation, what we do is we practice something called manifesting, which I know that word is like gets mixed reviews, but manifesting to me simply means consciously creating a life you love. It's you getting intentional about what you want your life to look like. It's you starting to ask better questions because if you ask the question of like, 
why can't I lose weight? I, why didn't I get a raise? When am I going to get a boyfriend? Why does she have a boyfriend? And I don't, if you ask shitty questions, you're going to get shitty answers. And so it's about using this very sacred time right after the meditations to start to get intentional about what you want your life to look like. And then I find that with high performers and high achievers, it's like, okay, like we do the meditation. Yes. For the sake of meditation, but then we get to catalyze those tools into creating a life that we love. Okay. Excellent. And I love the idea of what I would call the minimum effective dose for meditation. Your meditation is based on this type of yoga, which I won't attempt to pronounce, but it is basically a minimum effective dose of what you need to be able to let that stuff go. Is that correct? Am I understanding that properly? Um, yes, I would say like, you know, like monks are meditating all day. You know, they can meditate right. for 10, 12 hours a day. Awesome. Great. That's their contribution to society. They're laundering consciousness on a different level. As householders, if you have a kid and job and stuff to do, you have less time in your day with which to meditate. So you want to go in and actually use a technique that's very powerful, that's going to move the needle very quickly, and that you can do in a short amount of time as possible. So what I teach in our online trainings, we have um, like a 15-day online course called Ziva Online. And in there, once you graduate, you have a 15-minute twice-a-day practice. And it's really important actually that you do twice a day because once a day is only getting rid of all the new stress that you're picking up each day, but to get rid of all the backlog, we have to do it twice. So people graduate with 15 minute twice a day practice. And yes, I know that if you're super busy, that seems like an extraordinary amount of time to invest, but this is how, and you asked me earlier, like, how will you know if it's working? What can people expect out of their meditation? And the answer is your meditation is working if your life gets better. Like, does your sleep get better? Do you get sick less often? Is your sex better? Is your parking karma better? Are you more creative? Are you more intuitive? Is there more magic in your life? You know, these are the criteria by which we judge the practice, not by how much you're enjoying the sitting itself. And so if all those things start to happen, then you start to see that like, oh yeah, that's totally worth 15 minutes of my time. Okay. So I want to ask you about parking karma in a minute because uh, that's a fun topic, but I do want to ask you something that's very common that I think every person who has attempted meditation ask themselves, and that is, is this working while I'm doing it? I mean, I've gone so far as to have QEEGs done of my uh, brain scan and people will look, this has happened twice to me now that somebody has looked at my brain and said, oh, you must be a busy-minded meditator. And that is exactly how I feel because you could probably see in my brain waves, I'm not trained to look at the QEEG, but you could probably see that I have a million thoughts going on, but I feel pretty calm most of the time. There's a certain state of, okay, yeah, I have a million things going on, but I've trained myself enough to where I can manage that, I would say. So my question though, Emily, is when you're sitting there and you have the million things going off, there are clearly a million windows that were open on that day and you're trying to close them and you might be hung up on this idea of uh, thoughtlessness and you're trying to get rid of the thoughts, but you kind of stay frustrated in that space or in that idea. Do you have to cease thinking or would you say that's okay as long as you're just letting it go? Okay. It's really great question. Thank you for asking this. But first I want to ask you, what does the Q stand for in Q-E-E-G? Oh, huh. So 
Electroencephalography. Okay. Uh, uh, Q, qual- qualitative, quantitative. Uh, I've just, just never guessing. heard of Q before, oh. but you've done that, right? Oh, yes. Yes. And so, when, and so, and who said to you, you must be a busy-minded meditator? Like, what were they seeing? Were they seeing the fact that you meditated? Were they seeing the fact that you had thoughts of thoughts when you were meditating? And were you doing the test in meditation state or waking state? So this was waking state. State okay. and uh, quantitative is what okay. the Q stands for. Right. Thank you. Yeah, and I can definitely. So, couple different neurofeedback practitioners and neuroscience. I don't know if you know. Do you know Dr. Andrew Hill by any chance? I don't. I know Andrew Huberman, who's a neuroscientist, ah, but not okay. Andrew. It would be somebody interesting. He's a neuroscientist from UCLA, and. They take QEEGs of the brain and they really say that it's the easiest way to see your brain's activity, what's going on, both eyes open and eyes closed, mm-hmm. to be able to see. It might not be your, you know, they, they're not sitting there counting the number of thoughts, but they can see that your different brain waves and in which different parts of your brains. Mm-hmm. So is there a lot of alpha activity or beta activity or theta activity? This is how kind of layman's talk about brainwave activity, but it's really more about in what section and what hemisphere of the brain is there lots of different activities. So that's my best I can do with explaining a, a QEEG. Okay. So I'll, I'll answer your question. Thanks for telling me about the Q. And... I'll answer the question of like, what do I do if I have, if I'm like the world's busiest minded meditator and I have so many thoughts during my meditation and what if I don't think it's working? How do we know if it's working? So we'll start by saying that most people think that the point of meditation is to clear the mind. There's like this one dude going around telling everyone that in order to meditate, we have to clear our minds. And if the thoughts come, we just let them go. But here is some really good news that I want everyone to listen up, okay? If you're like making dinner or driving and you've zoned out, like listen up, focus in, everybody. The mind thinks involuntarily, just like the heart beats involuntarily. I'll say that again for dramatic effect. The mind thinks involuntarily, just like the heart beats involuntarily. So trying to give your brain a command to shut up is as impactful as trying to give your heart a command to stop beating. It does not work. And yet this is the criteria by which everyone is judging themselves as to whether or not they can meditate so that everyone feels like they're failing and then people quit. And so our mission at Ziva is to rid the world of ex-meditators, people who have tried meditation and think it's hard because they're trying to do monk meditation, people who try to meditate and they feel like they're failing because they're still having thoughts because they're not dead. And then in meditation just becomes this like thing that they feel like they're failing at and they feel guilty about not doing. And then they get more stressed out about it when actually it's the whole key. Like it's the key to the car. It is the key to bliss and fulfillment. It is the thing that we're all looking for. It is the thing that gives you access to your happiness internally. So we got to find this guy who's telling everybody to clear their minds and we got to teach him how to meditate. The world will really be so, so much better on the other side of it. So if stopping the mind from thinking is not the point, what do we do instead? And how do we know if it's working? So what we do instead is that at least in Ziva, we're all about surrender. It's all about letting go of control. It's all about inducing this deep healing rest. It feels kind of like a nap sitting up, except for you don't have a sleep hangover on the other side because you're not inducing sleep chemicals. You're inducing bliss chemicals. Now, how we know if it's working, like I was saying earlier, your life gets better, but in the short term, 
you feel more clear, more awake, more quote unquote focused on the other side of the meditation. So I think what's happening is that we're chasing a result instead of focusing on the process. Yes, meditation can make you more focused. Yes, you can be more clear on the other side. But if during the meditation itself, you're trying to focus and trying to clear your mind, then it's counterproductive. And so it's all about letting go. It's about at least in Ziva, it's about like a simultaneity of consciousness, like pulling the lens out. And the analogy that I use in my classes, like when I teach live or online, what I share with people is imagine that your meditation is a party. Okay. And whatever tool, whatever technique you're using, um, at Ziva, we use a mantra, which is not a slogan or an affirmation, by the way, mantras are mind vehicles. They're tools to help induce the rest. So that would be like your guest of honor. Okay. Now all your thoughts are your guests. The invited guests are the thoughts that you like having. The uninvited guests are the thoughts that you do not like having. Now, your job at this meditation party is to be the host, not the bouncer. You're the host, not the bouncer. So even if you don't like some of those guests, you still have to be a polite host. And yes, you check in on your guest of honor from time to time, but ultimately everyone's allowed to be there because it's a party. Now, what you don't want to do is spend three hours with your invited guests. That's rude to your guest of honor. And what you also don't want to do is punch all the uninvited guests in the face because they're not going to leave. They're going to get their friends and they're going to come back or they're going to get the cops and be like, this meditation bitch punched me in the face and kicked me out of her party, <laughs> right? Because what we resist persists. And the harder you push against those thoughts, the harder they push back with equal and opposite force. And guess who's going to win? The thoughts. Why? Because again, the mind thinks involuntarily, just like the heart beats involuntarily. So if you just enjoy being the host of the party, and if you have a technique that is designed for you, and if you take the time to get some training, because really meditation is like any other skill, then the return on investment seems so worth it. Okay. So when your thoughts pop up, just being cool with them, just observing them. Just be cool. I think that is that the best way to to summarize. It's just okay. Well, it, it's, it's okay. It, yes, thoughts are okay, but that's not the whole picture. Okay, like because you just sitting down and closing your eyes and be like, okay, thoughts are cool. <laughs> like that's just you sitting on the couch thinking, right? right? That's called daydreaming. So you actually do have to have some tools. You have to have some techniques. You have to have some training. It's like that would be like sitting in a car without a key versus sitting in the car with the right key and learning how to drive it. You know, both cases, you're just sitting in a car, but in one, it's driving down the highway and the other one, you're parked in the car. So once you have the techniques and the tools and the training, then yes, then yeah, when thoughts come, it's all good. Okay, so good. It's okay. Then can we put the key in the ignition and tell people right now so they have a little something that they can take away? Because conceptually we've done really well, but I want to make sure that people understand, oh, I can do this and shift my practice. Mm. Yes. So I would say if people want to actually invest the time and want to raise their hand and be like, yes, I want to do this. There's a couple of different routes. Like, and I'll, I'll happily give you some like breathing techniques or mindfulness techniques. Like if people want to state change right now, if you want me to share something like that, absolutely. The meditation, because it is very powerful, because it's going to create for most people, a pretty intense healing catharsis. If you want the key to the car, I have to make sure you get the driving instruction. And so I don't just give keys to the car. It's like, you got to come to New York. You got to sign up for the course. You got to read the book. Like you have to get the driving instructions if you want the key to the very powerful car. However, I'm happy to give some breathing techniques to create a state change in the now. So if people do want to dive in, you know, like you said, the book is a great way to do that. Stress less, accomplish more. You can get it on Amazon. And then also we have this online course 
which is only 15 minutes a day for 15 days. And you learn the mindfulness, the meditation and the manifesting. And I teach people a protocol by which to choose their own mantra from a list of mantras that we have in that course. And, and then at the end you learn the manifesting. So anyway, so there's that. But if you want to start with something that you could do like right now, mm, yes, I think you could do this driving. So it's really simple, but powerful. It's called the 2X breath. And it's a breathing technique. I would put this in the mindfulness category or the breath work category, not the meditation category. But it's really great because of its simplicity. So if you're like about to have an anxiety attack or you're about to have a panic attack, or if you're just feeling really overwhelmed or you have too many windows open on your computer, you can do this thing called the 2X breath. So all we do, and we can do it together, inhale through the nose for two, and exhale through your mouth for four. Again, in through the nose for two, and exhale through your mouth for four. We'll do a few more inhaling, the biggest inhale you've taken all day. And exhaling, doubling the length of the exhale. Do a few more into the nose for two. And doubling the length of the exhale. When we do this, what we do is we calm down the vagus nerve, which is the thing that connects the brain to the body. We start to oxygenate the brain and the body. So one more, biggest inhale you've taken all year. And then doubling the length of that exhale. And the cool thing about the 2X breath, you can do it walking, you can do it seated. And it's a great way to just get you out of fight or flight and back into your body, into the right now. Excellent. I've heard that this breathing technique actually reduces your heart rate. Mm -hmm. It can, yes. Excellent. Well, this is very helpful because there are a lot of 15-year-olds out there in their mom's car driving around with their meditation apps and their YouTube videos. And, you know, because meditation, it's big. The Mick meditation out there where everybody wants to go through the drive-through and get served. I mean, I, I understand that's that's not exactly how it works. Uh, but yeah, thank you for some some actionable stuff here. And I wish all podcast guests would have me do some breathing because that was fantastic. Well, you can do it. You can be like, hey, in order to be on my podcast, we all breathe together to start. Excellent. <laughs> Excellent. See if the interviews get better. Sure. Sure. I, I bet they would. Uh, Emily, you mentioned one thing that I wanted to ask you, and that was the sleep hangover. I wasn't sure what you were referring to. Could you clarify? Yeah, it was just a lot of folks don't like to take naps because they're afraid they'll have a sleep hangover afterwards. You know, if I take a nap, then I'll be exhausted for two hours. And so like a 30 minute nap ends up being like a three or four hour extravaganza versus meditation. You can actually do at work. Like you could do it in an open floor office plan. You can sneak away to a conference room. You can go to a stairwell. You can do it in a hotel lobby or a Starbucks and you just order a tea, you know, let it get cold in front of you, sit, put your headphones in with no music, but just, this is the international sign for, I don't want to talk to you close your eyes and then you just meditate right there. And what you're doing, because you're releasing that dopamine and serotonin, when you come out of the meditation, you have not released the sleep chemicals. So you're basically within two to three minutes, you're back in the waking state and you're ready to go back to work, just feeling more refreshed, more energized, more creative, instead of going through the full sleep cycle, which just takes a little bit longer both to access it and to clear the sleep chemicals afterwards. Okay, great. And I'm someone who can attest that my life got infinitely better from meditation. I mean, I'm not even the same person, not even a little bit. So I would love, and I do agree that parking karma 
I believe that does exist, but I don't know how to explain it. I more like to believe that that's happening because then I can affirm myself when I do see that parking spot and I can say, okay, this is another reason to keep meditating. And it's a really nice thing. I can't prove it by science, but I would love if you could, or, or it doesn't have to be scientific. It can just be however you think of it. Why do people's lives improve so dramatically after meditation? Mm. So I'm so glad that you, the meditation has helped your life so much. I'm mm-hmm. so glad you have great parking karma. And it's it's a little anecdotal, right? So it's like after teaching 15,000 people, I've just seen enough people come to me and say like, Emily, my life is so much better. I, there's serendipity, there's synchronicity, there's flow, there's magic. I think about someone and they call, you know, I have the idea. And then my best friend comes to me with the same idea. And we start a company together. I got a $120,000 scholarship that I did not apply for. I went from $70,000 in debt to 1.2 million in growth in one year. And I attribute that to meditation. Like I, I just have heard these stories happen thousands of times over that like, I don't really need science to tell me that it's working. But as far as like, why would serendipity increase? So according to the Vedas, which is this beautiful ancient body of knowledge, there's only one thing and we're all it. And that one thing is consciousness. And if you want to look at that from a more scientific point of view, there's only one thing and we're all it. And that one thing is energy. And so The smallest thing that we can detect so far is called the Higgs boson particle, also known as the God particle. And I think it was about five years ago that they discovered it and, you know, took a few billion dollars of smashing things together very, very quickly to get like smaller than an atom or a quark or a lepto quark. And now we've got this thing called the Higgs boson particle. And it turns out that this particle is actually just a wave. Now, I think this is hilarious because it took us about 6,000 years and a few billion dollars to come back to what these Indian dudes have been saying all the while is that there's only one thing and that one thing is consciousness. Because the analogy that we use to describe this or to illustrate this is that we're all just different waves on this giant ocean of consciousness. So I'm the wave that looks like Emily and you're the wave that looks like Matt, but at the end of the day, we're both shaped ocean, right? We're both curved ocean. God pretending to be human, ocean pretending to be wave. And most humans only have access to their left brain. Most humans only have access to waking, sleeping, and dreaming states of consciousness, which is primarily left brain function, very individual, very wave. And then once you start meditating, you start taking your right brain to the gym. And the right brain is not in charge of individuality. It's in charge of totality. So you start to feel more connected to everyone and everything. You start to feel that sense of expansiveness and connection to all that is to divine divinity itself, to creativity itself. And if you're spending some time dancing in that unmanifest, dancing in that divine space every day, twice a day, then eventually it starts to bleed into your waking state. That right brain starts to integrate with the left brain. So it's like that little tiny wave of individuality. Even when you're in your waking state, if you've accessed, if you've reminded the wave that it is the ocean enough times then eventually when you come out of the ocean state and you come back into the wave, that wave is no longer under the illusion that is exclusively a wave. It knows now beyond a shadow of a doubt that it is also the ocean. And then you end up with this simultaneity of left brain and right individuality and totality, you know, human and divine happening all of the time. And if you think about if one little wave has a desire and it only has access to its wave, then it has to be like, I want a million dollars. I want a million dollars. I want a million dollars. And that little intention has to go from wave to wave to wave to wave to wave to get any support. But if you have tools to de-excite your nervous system, to access that right brain oceanic consciousness, to access pure source energy, and you set an intention from there, 
then it's very easy for the whole ocean to conspire to make it so. So like at the moment that you need the parking spot in Whole Foods, that same moment someone inside is coming out and then it all just works as it is designed. And if anyone has ever gone to Burning Man, then they've seen this in action because at Burning Man, there's no real time. There's no phones and it's all now. And it's a bunch of people that are there to have fun and to be present. And and it's like that flow and that synchronicity just, it happens on like exponentially there because everyone isn't just looking in their phone all the time and trying to text everyone about everything. It's like, let's just be available in the now. Well, that is a very beautiful explanation. So thank you for that. And if people want to go ahead and start manifesting, for lack of a better term, how can they start bringing the things that they want to see in their future into their present? Mm. So the manifesting piece is, it's simple but profound. And I mean, I will say that it is the dessert, okay? It's the dessert course of the Ziva technique. So you don't skip right to dessert, right? Just like that's not going to feel satiating. It's not going to, you have got to eat your vegetables first, right? So I find that the combination of meditation and manifesting is so much more powerful together than either one alone. But I would say that after your meditation, using that time where you've just accessed that right brain, you've just de-excited the nervous system, you've accessed source energy to set your intentions from that space is very powerful time to do it. Now, if you don't have a meditation practice, you could instead use sleep. It's one way to do it. Like just setting your intentions and manifesting on your way to sleep or first thing in the morning is just when you're dancing in between different states of consciousness is the ideal time to do it. And the real trick, if there is one, is basically imagining your dreams as if they're happening now. Imagining the dream as if it is the current reality versus what most of us do is water the weeds. You know, instead of watering the flowers, we water the weeds. We put our attention on the absence of the thing. We worship the absence of the dream instead of imagining the dream as if it's happening now. Sure. I've even heard that when you ask for something or when you say, I do not want this to happen, or let's use a real life example, do not let this plane crash (laughs) when you get on the plane. Well, your brain actually just skips the not and all you think about is plane crash. Mm -hmm. So it's so important to set your intentions in a positive way. Yeah, manner. Because yeah, your brain, your cells, that pilot, it all heard plane crash, plane crash, plane crash. Oh, okay. Yeah, don't even say it. (laughs) Yeah. So instead, instead, we're like, beautiful journey, landing early, getting there ahead of schedule, flight where I make friends. You know, it's it's moving towards the positive. What do I actually want to have happen? And then imagining that as if it's the current reality. Sure, sure. And so I know that this is a more advanced technique that you talk about in the book, but is there anything actionable that people can do as far as goal setting or intention setting as we called it, or okay, sit there and then write down how you want your day goes, or just literally sit there and visualize. Are these things that you recommend in your book? Yeah. So I say part one of the book is all about like the selfish reasons that we come to meditation. It's all the neuroscience. There's a whole chapter on why meditation helps you have better sex. There's a whole chapter on parking karma. There's a whole chapter on reversing your body age. So we start there. And in part two, I actually teach the technique. I teach an adaptation of the Ziva technique, but you do learn the mindfulness, the meditation and the manifesting. And then in part three, we look at like the ripple effect of like, how does you selfishly getting better impact your family? 
how does you selfishly getting better impact your town, your coworkers, and then ultimately like human consciousness itself. But as far as the, and I do like teach an actual technique in there where it's like, you're basically just, it sounds simple because it is, but I actually walk you through like visualizing the dream as if it's happening now and then sharing it with a friend, right? Like calling a friend, phoning a friend and be like, and sharing the news. Cause a lot of us, we do things, yes, because we want them, but also because we want the joy of sharing it. So that's a fun thing you could add to your manifesting is after you visualized it, imagine calling your best friend and sharing the news with them. Excellent. Excellent. Well, Emily, I know you have to go here in a couple minutes. And I'm going to go feed my baby. Yes. All right. Excellent. I, I know that, yeah, you have a lot of information on that on, on Instagram. You've been quite public about all it. breastfeeding all the time on my Instagram feed. Yes. If you want meditation stuff, go to at Ziva Meditation. Um, but if you want all breastfeeding all the time, you can come to my personal. <laughs> all right. Which well, is Emily Stella Fletcher. Beautiful. And and I know your book, again, is Stress Less, Accomplish More, yeah. Meditation for Extraordinary Performance. But if if you had one more piece of just overarching advice that you would leave to everyone, if they want to make a difference in their life, and it doesn't have to be a quick fix, get off and, and go and do this. It can be, hey, work towards something quite large in their life. It might be a lifelong practice that you ask them to undertake. What's the one thing that you would tell them that they can make their life extraordinarily better? I mean, not to sound like a broken record, I know it's predictable, but if it's really one thing, I mean, I have to say, you've got to find a teacher, find a technique that resonates with you and start a daily practice. It doesn't have to be me. It doesn't have to be Ziva, but do something that allows you to access your own fulfillment internally, because it really is the key that we're all looking for. And once you find that, it makes everything in your life better. Excellent. Excellent. And where can people stay in touch with you, Emily? Yeah. So the best place is zivameditation.com. So Z-I-V-A meditation.com. That's where people can access our live and online trainings. And if they want, like, I know you're really big on like what actual things people do right now. So, you know, if, if this comes out, like before the book is actually available on Amazon, you can pre-order it on Amazon. But then if you go to stresslessthebook.com, we've got amazing, like really, I'm really proud of the, the bonuses that we have there. You can get actually chapter one of the book, plus the preface by Andrew Hughes. Huberman, who's a neuroscientist at Stanford, and a forward by Dr. Mark Hyman, who was basically like the father of functional medicine. And they're both students and Ziva graduates and, and friends. So you can get that. You can also get like basically like a day in my life, like all my performance hacks so from like food to hot water to Ayurveda to breath work. Um, so there's a lot of bonuses there. So if you pre-order the book on Amazon and then go to stresslessthebook.com, there's a bunch of stuff. And I do guided audios from exercises at the end of the chapters. Very good. Well, I, I hope people take full advantage, of course, of the, the hacks and the low-hanging fruit, but also go forward and put in the work for a practice that they can use for the rest of their life. I agree. So, Emily, yeah, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. This was great. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. What's up, guys? It's Matt with the final word. And I wanted to clarify a little rant that Emily goes on because of a a uh, little bit of a miscommunication that she and I had during the interview. And some of you may have caught it, others 
probably didn't care or it didn't matter to them, whatever. Uh, but she was unfamiliar with the QEEG. And what I was referring to was a brain map that I have had two or three different times that is done while you were not meditating, while you were just in a resting state with both your eyes open and your eyes closed. Now, I was called by, not by Dr. Andrew Hill, but someone who Andrew Hill had referred me to as a busy-minded meditator. And Emily took it as someone whose mind was quite busy while meditating, but the technicality was that the QEEG does not measure you while you are meditating. So uh, what they were actually referring to was that my brain activity, in my brain activity, in the brain map, it was clear that I meditate and also that I have quite a busy mind. So those two things independent of one another. And she went off to talk about how uh, people who say that you should cease all thoughts. Cease, is that a word? The cessation of thoughts uh, should be the point of meditation. She went off to say, we need to stop that guy from saying that. And uh, I just didn't want anybody to think that it was my neuroscientist uh, friend, Dr. Andrew Hill. And uh, yeah, just wanted to clarify and make sure you guys understood a little bit more of the subject matter. So that's all. If this was helpful, please send it to a friend. And I would love if you sent me a message on Instagram at Matt Wilson TV and left a five-star review because I want to spread these type of ideas practices that will help people build better lives. Thank you very much. You guys rock.